Psalm 73. We're going to be looking at God's Word today uh, in this passage. I know it uh, uh, not has not been mentioned, I don't think, during this service, but last service uh, was mentioned that it is uh, Super Bowl Sunday, and some of you may be going to some kind of party, and uh, some of you may be thinking, now, who's playing? Who's playing in that? You know, you can't even remember. I read a story about a guy this past week that actually bought tickets to the Super Bowl, and they cost him over $2,600 a piece. And so his ad in the newspaper was, he said, uh, I bought Super Bowl tickets. They cost me $2,600, over $2,600. And, uh, but I, I didn't realize it was the same day as my wedding. <laughs> he said, so I'm looking for somebody to take my place. You really can't miss it. It's at the First Baptist Church, and she'll be the one wearing the white dress. <laughs> yeah, my wife said, you know, the men enjoy that much more than the ladies do. <laughs> but, you know, that's the joke of the day, and, you know, I had to have something to say anyway while they're taking up those cards. That was card receiving. That was a card receiving moment, okay? Let's look at our doubts. Been in a series of messages on when trust makes no sense. Now, we all have doubts in our life. All of us experience that. In fact, even in the Bible, when a man was going to be, his daughter was going to be healed, was crying out to Jesus. Jesus said to him in Mark chapter 9, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately, the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. And so we find someone here in the Bible that was doubting. In fact, you can find it all throughout the Bible. Doubt is really kind of a part of faith. And we'll tell you the difference between that and unbelief in just a moment. But doubt's a part of it. When we, when we look in the Bible and talk about doubt, we often hear messages about assurance of salvation. And that is, you know, you're not sure you're saved and you maybe were baptized at some point, came forward during a service at some point, but you're not really sure that if you were to die, you'd go to heaven. And so you hear a message about that. But Christians who are assured of their salvation often doubt as well. And we, we doubt maybe what we just did. We, we get giver's remorse. Wow, you know, I just committed to this. Should I have really done that? You know, am I going to have the money? I've got to redo my budget. Somebody else says, well, I made a commitment to serve. And wow, I'm two weeks into it. Wonder if my circumstances change. Fear begins to, to grip our heart and we begin to doubt. What about those prayers that we have for our loved ones or for our friends. We pray and we pray and we pray and we pray and, and we're claiming all kinds of promises and doubt infiltrates our mind uh, consistently. Well, I could have gone to a lot of different passages in the Bible where it really uh, talks about doubt. But here's the problem with a lot of passages. A lot of them talk about the causes of doubt, other passages, the consequences of doubt. Other times, they skip all that and just go to, here's how this guy overcame doubt in his life. Psalm 73 gives us all of it, all of it at one time. One of my favorite psalms, we're going to look at it this morning. And here's a man by the name of Asaph who wrote many of the psalms, and he was going through a really pity time in his life. He was doubting God, and he was pouring out his heart to God. Now, you and I have doubts, and sometimes we just don't have an outlet. You know, we, we start talking about doubting God, and people say, well, you know, hey, you need to believe God. How come you're not believing God? What do you mean you have doubts? And people begin to criticize you. He says, you know, it's just best I keep all my doubts to myself. And yet the person who's probably rebuking you just went through some doubts and is looking forward in his life to going through more doubts. And so, but, but here we find a man who is willing to open up his heart 
and say, look, I'm going to write this down. Everybody is going to know. Millions of people maybe are going to know how I felt one day and why I felt that way and how I overcame it as well. So we're going to be looking at three points today. Number one, unmasking, unmasking our doubts. That is, we'll look at the what. What is doubt? Examining our doubts. Why? Why do we doubt? And then conquering our doubts, which is the how-to. How do you overcome it? Well, first of all, I want us to look at Psalm 73 in the first three verses, and we're going to see the unmasking of doubt, and that is what it is. Notice it says, truly God is good to Israel. Notice right off the bat, that's what he's saying. He, he starts off with that. It's almost like you already know the conclusion he's going to reach by the fact that how he opens up. But he says, this is what happened to me. He says, to those who are pure in heart. Now, he's talking to people like maybe you, hopefully you and I, that we're pure in heart, and that is we're not with hypocrisy. We really are followers of God without any uh, pretense whatsoever, without any pretending whatsoever. We're real followers of God. Now, this word purity means that. It doesn't mean perfection. It means a pure heart, that is, an unhypocritical heart of really genuinely being a follower of the Lord. Then he says about a heart. Well, it's, heart is mentioned as I've said many times, over 900 times in the Bible, almost 1,000 times in the Bible, and it's the causal inner core of who you are, biblically. It's not just the seat of the emotions. That's America's way of explaining it and Romanticism's way of explaining it. In the Bible, it is the causal core of who you are. It, it's what makes you what you are. All through this, this passage, it talks about the pure in heart in verse 1, callous or frivolous hearts, in verse 7, clean heart in verse 13. And then verse 21, the heart that is grieved, the heart that may fail in verse 26. And then also in verse 26, a God who is giving strength to my heart. And he says, I want to believe. I really am pure in heart, but I'm struggling. And here's what I'm struggling with. Look at verse 2. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. Now, this is a metaphor, and it's a, a heart that is pure. My heart is pure, but I'm getting off balance here. I'm not seeing things in the right eye. This idea of a foot slipping is not just simply in the Hebrew word. It means to have double vision. It doesn't mean just simply you put your foot on the rock and it slips off. It means that you're not sure where to put it. It's like the rock is dancing on you, and you're, you're just not sure where to go. Now, I wrote a book a, a few years ago called Overcoming um, our spiritual vertigo. And I shared with you that I've had physical vertigo before where you get dizzy, you don't know what up and what is down. And I discovered that what was happening to my life was simply this. My brain could not process what I was seeing. Well, spiritual vertigo is when you, your, your faith cannot process what you see, hear, or experience. And we'll find out in this passage that that's exactly what was happening to this guy. He was going through spiritual vertigo because he was seeing, in verse 3, what he saw, and then later, in verses 10, 11, and 12, and following, what he experienced. And he says, look, I'm looking at it. I know what I need to believe, and I know what the Bible says, and I'm a prophet of God, for crying out loud. I know I've seen the miracles, but God, there's some, I'm struggling with this. I, I just, I, my, my faith cannot process what is real, what seems to be real life. Well, as we look at this, we understand again that doubt is a part of faith. Now, unbelief is when 
I, I don't believe God to a point where I say, you know, look, I, I just I can't buy into that. I'm not going to do what God wants me to do. I'm not going to obey him. That's unbelief. But doubt means, okay, I don't know if this is going to work out or not, but I've got to do it. God, God says I have to, so I'm going to reluctantly take that step, but I'm not sure it's going to work out. That's, that's doubt. But you obey God even in the midst of that doubt. What happens when we doubt? Well, we, we doubt our commitments. As I've said before, we make all kinds of commitments to the Lord. Then have, we second-guess ourselves. But also, when doubt comes, fear develops. We talked about the first a message about the fear that overcomes us without faith, without trusting in God. When doubt comes, fear is going to follow automatically. And it's basically taking our eyes off God and placing them on the circumstances of life, what we see, hear, and experience around us. A great illustration of that was Jesus was walking on the water on the Sea of Galilee. And, he, and Peter said to him, Lord, if it's you, Tell me to come out to you. Command me to come to you. And so he did, and Peter began to walk on the water. And if you know the passage, you know what happens. The Bible says he began to look around. He took his eyes off the Lord, began to put his eyes on the waves of the sea and the winds around him, and he came to the conclusion very quickly that he was, he was in over his head, and pretty soon he was because he began to sink, and Jesus had to save him. He took his eyes off God and put them on to what was happening, his circumstances in life. Now, he was simply, Asaph's asking the question. He's asking this question. And that is, does it pay to serve God? What was his problem? Verse 3. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. He was jealous. He was, he was envious. He wanted somebody else's life at this point. He wanted somebody else's blessing at this point. And he's looking at the wicked and the arrogant and saying, you know, they've got it made. They've got it made. People pay attention to them. They get their way. They have the power. They have the, the prosperity and the, they have the things that they want in life. And I've got nothing. Does it really pay to serve God? And so now he's doubting. So let's examine those doubts. Look at the why. Beginning in verse 4, I'm just going to read through this, maybe make a couple of comments. He says, for they have no pains. So he begins to elaborate on the wicked and those who do not follow the Lord. For they have no pangs until death. Now he understands that there's a payday coming, but in this life, he says, they don't have any pain. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Goes on to say in verse six, therefore pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. And we understand that really whether it's an athlete, a singer, an actor, it just seems like those who are most admired in life are, come across as arrogant. The more arrogant you are, the more endorsements that you get. So we can identify with that. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. Look, they got to turn somewhere. They, they turn right back to them. And they say, how can God not know? How can God know? Is there knowledge in the most high? And they begin to doubt God. Behold, these are the wicked always at ease, and they increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. He says, my goodness, I have a pure heart. 
I'm trying to follow the Lord. I'm trying to do the right thing. I'm a prophet of God. I'm obeying the voice of God. And you see, the people aren't turning to me for the voice of God. Rather, they're turning to everybody else because of what they can give them because they have the power in life. God, that's not right. It's not justice. It's not right. It's not fair. And I'm upset about it. He's struggling with what he's seeing in this life. Now, we know that the wicked are not so. We know that the rich, the wealthy, probably experience more broken homes than anybody else. We, we know there's misery and money can really ruin you. Look at the people who won the lottery. But sometimes we don't look at it that way. We look around and say, wow, this, these people are, are crooked. Well, will they ever get arrested? God, don't, don't you see what they're doing? And, and our faith begins, be, begins to be hurt. And in this case, it was envy. It could be with us something else. But we see, we hear, we experience that, you know, it just doesn't jive with my faith. It just does. It's not, there's no coherency here. There's no consistency here. I know what the Bible says, but real life seems to be saying something else. So what's our problem? Why? Well, let me give you a few. I'm going to give you a couple of lists today, okay? I'm not trying to complicate things, but there's some lists here. And he says, one thing, we fail to remember our own blessings, our past blessings. We say, God's not fair. Look what it says in verse 3. I saw, I saw, I saw. Verses 13 and following. All in vain have I kept my heart clean, washed my hands in innocent. Verse 15. If I had said I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your people, or of your children. He says, I can't even preach this stuff. If I were to get up and talk about my struggles, it would hurt the kingdom of God. I can't even do this. But when I thought... How to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. Now, I'm just worn out to thinking about it. And we understand here, <clears throat> excuse me, as he's going through these doubts, he fa he's failing at this point. He won't later, but he's failing to remember his past blessings. We've said before that faith is like it's in transit. It's between, between the no longer and the not yet. And when you and I fail to remember what God has done for us in the past, we're immediately going to look at the future and say, I don't have a basis for believing you anymore. We always, we make predictions in life. We make predictions on the economy. We make predictions on weather. The weatherman makes predictions based on the past. We're going to believe God and have faith in God, believing what he has done for us and remembering what he has done for us in the past. And we fail to remember. Secondly, we must understand our experiences. In verse 14, uh, again, he says, all the day long, I've been stricken and rebuked every morning. I, I don't get it, God. I don't get what you're trying to even do in my life. I doubt it intellectually. I doubt it spiritually. It's as, though, it's as though walls have come up around me. And I think he's realizing now he's in spiritual warfare. Ephesians 6.12 tells us, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And we're bringing all this together and say, look at the truth, God. This, this is the truth. There's an experience gap here, a sight gap. I don't know where to place my foot. I don't know if I could, I don't, I'm, not, I'm sure I want to place my foot on you, but God, I don't even know where you are. I've got spiritual vertigo in my life. And he doesn't understand since God, at this point, he does understand since God is so awesome, since he is the ruler of the universe, he's different than us. He's going to come to the, <clears throat> come to the point at the end of this message to think 
hey, wow, I realize that since if I worship an all-sovereign, all-knowing God, all-powerful God who knows more, knows all the past, all the present, all the future, if, if he's so different, full of grace, full of truth, full of faithfulness, full of love, so different from me, so much more powerful than me, then it makes sense that he's going to do some stuff that I don't understand. Now, we think it's truth. And sometimes what's happening to you is the truth, but it's not always the truth. It wasn't the truth in this case. It really wasn't. He was making up, because he was having a big pity party, he was making up stuff in his, oh, not, not only that, but not, let me justify how I feel, God. Look at this guy, look at this guy, look at this guy. All those things we're going to find out really aren't the truth. But even if some of the stuff in your life is the truth, it's not the whole truth. Os Guinness, the philosopher has said, a Christian philosopher, Os Guinness has said, you know, we know the facts and it's the truth, but it's not the whole truth. Never the whole truth. Only God knows the whole truth. And so we look and we think, well, I, I failed to thank God. I failed to look at the past. I, I, I can't understand my personal experiences. But also, we exchange our object of faith. Like Peter, instead of looking to God. It's not that we're trusting in our circumstances. When we begin to look at everything else, we're trusting in our fears. We're trusting in ourselves to somehow overcome those circumstances on our own. We think they, they are overcoming us, and there's nothing that God is going to do about it. But notice it says, again in verse 15, I said, I will speak thus, verse 16, and when I thought, he, he's going to speak, he's going to think, how to understand this, it, it was just beyond me. He said in verse 2, I misplaced my foot. I misplaced it. What's he talking about here? He says, I, I'm not really putting my, you know, the Bible talks about a rock being Jesus Christ, the foundation to life, and the foundation, say, to this building that we're in. This is the most important part of the building. If it were not for a good foundation, it was all crumble. So no matter what it looks like on the top, whatever your house looks like on the inside or the outside, the foundation is the most important thing. So it's talking about here, I almost placed my foot on the wrong foundation because I had spiritual vertigo. We exchange our object of faith. You know, people talk about all, I remember um, a lady talking to me, a relative in fact, was talking to me uh, years ago, uh, and she said, you know, I just don't have enough. I don't have enough faith. Now she didn't say enough, you know, I'm, that's preacher talk. You know, I'm, I'm just trying to emphasize something because it looks like some of you are dozing off. But um, she said, I just don't have enough faith. But she was looking at the amount of her faith rather than the object of the faith. For example, uh, say you're running through a jungle and you're being chased by a dinosaur. I'm just trying to get realistic here, something we've all experienced, you know, something. <laughs> and it's one of those dinosaurs that have the little arms, big mouth, little arms, a T-Rex, right? And he's got these little, little bitty arms, so you know he can't reach you, but he can eat you. And you're running through the jungle, and, and you come. He's still back here in the trees, but you hear him coming. The trees are getting knocked down because of it. And you're looking. There's a cliff there, and you see three branches. And you think to yourself, wow, I really believe if I jump and grab hold one of those branches, I'm going to be saved. In fact, I believe it so strongly. I'm going to jump three times. I'm going to jump, climb back up, jump. I just believe it. I'll try all three. Or you say to yourself, wow. I don't know whether those branches are going to hold me or not. I don't even know if I'll slip off. 
but the dinosaur's coming. And you reason to yourself, wow, if I stay here, I'm going to be eaten. If I jump, he'll never see me, and maybe I'll make it. Now, let me ask you something. You, you jump, and two of those branches, you may not know this, I, I left this out of the story. But two of those branches won't hold you. They'll pull right out of the mountain. Right out. Only one's going to hold you. Now, let me ask you something. Would it make a difference if you knew which one it was? You say, oh, that one on the left, that's the one that's going to hold me. Okay? I'm going to jump on and grab it, that one. And then somebody else, a friend, says, oh, let me go first because I really believe it. Who's going to be saved the most? The one who grabs hold, who doubts, or the one who grabs hold of the same branch that is all filled with faith? Both are going to be saved. Both of them. It doesn't so much matter. I mean, the amount of the faith is important, but the most important thing is the object of your faith. What are you grabbing hold of? Which branch are you reaching for? The circumstances in life, you're trusting your money, trusting in your family to give you hope and blessing in life. If, you, if so, nobody can break your heart like, like your family. If you're trusting in money, it's going to let you down. Man, we're in a, in a world of prosperity, but 10 years ago, we were in a world of hurt. It's going to let you down. Sooner or later, but when you trust in the Lord, you may not trust much, but if you put, place your faith and trust in him on the throne of your life, that's what makes the difference. So the object of our faith is shaken, is shaken to the core. And then we find this man did not really desire God's will. He wanted his own will. He wanted to be prosperous. He wanted to be respected. I think that was more of his problem and simply saying, I want a lot of money. His, he wanted the money to have the power so people would turn to him and, and hear the voice of God. I'm sure he justified that. God, I'm going to do the right thing. I'm going to preach your word. He was justified all over the place. But he didn't really want God's will. We can see this, and we'll come back to this in just a moment. But verse 25, whom I have in heaven but you, and there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. He's having a revival here. This is part of the answer that we'll get to in just a moment. But he was not desiring what God wanted to start with. Do we understand the will of God? Do we want the will of God? You know, sometimes we doubt because we're afraid that God will not give us the desires of what we want. Instead of saying like Jesus in the garden, Lord, not my will, but your will be done. So you're going through some doubts in your life. I'm not surprised. I've been through doubts. I'll go through doubts again. How do we handle that? Let's look at what Asaph advises, what he did in his life. And we can see the conquering of our doubts beginning in verse, let's look at verse 17. Until, the whole passage turns right there. Until, until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned therein. My eyes were opened to their end. Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall in ruin. They're the ones going to get dizzy. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors, like a dream when one wakes, awakes. Oh, Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in the heart. He says, look, this is in the past, but now I realize it's not that I ought to envy them. I ought to, I ought to pray for them. I ought to hurt for them. Look what they're going to be going through. But notice what happened until... I entered the sanctuary of God. First thing is you need to replace your foot. You need to, you need to put, put your, place your foot on where it needs to be. In other words, not the spiritual vertigo, 
but rather place it where it needs to be. And where does it need to be? It needs to be with Jesus on the throne of your life. But notice he says something really strange here, something strange to our generation. The last generation, everybody would have said thumbs up. 50 years ago, I guarantee you, everybody would have been saying, amen, just like that. Because I was in the South, you know, I was born in the South. So they would have said, amen, big applause in the church. But now I say this and think, ooh, that's kind of convicting. So be prepared, all right? He said, go to the sanctuary. What is he saying? I go to church. When I went to church, everything changed. Isn't that strange? He said, when I went to church, everything changed. Now, back then, I'm not even sure they had great music. I'm not, I guess it was great to them. I'm not sure they had great preaching or even good preaching. I don't know. But he says, when I was among the family of God, when I was in the sanctuary with God, with his people, I saw things again through fresh eyes. It made a difference. It made a difference. I remember the first church uh, where Pam and I pastored. I was pastoring there, and, and uh, uh, Pam and I uh, grew in that church. I mean, it was just a great church, Broad River Baptist Church, great place to be. And um, I remember after going there, we had a revival meeting. I called and I said, what we need to do is have a revival meeting. You know what that is, right? Anybody ever know what I'm talking about at all? Okay, five or ten of you, five or six. Um, it's a meeting where you call another pastor from down the road to preach for you for a week because he probably called you the year before to preach for him, okay? So you get them, you get him, and you get a new music guy maybe or somebody. Maybe not as good as what you had, but, you know, nevertheless, you get a new guy. And you meet for a week, and you ask all the people to come, and you're trying to get their lost friends to come and invite neighbors and, and all that. And, and so we had a revival meeting. And I never will forget some of these new Christians coming out. Not just one, many of them were saying like, wow, I just feel so on fire for God. And I knew. Now listen, I, I was listening to the same preaching they were listening to. It wasn't that great. Okay? <laughs> and, and the music was nothing like we hear here. What was she saying? Hey, I'm a young believer, and I struggle. I struggle with my faith, but just being here among God's people, hearing God's word it's like cleansing my heart every night. I feel on fire for God every day. Every day is like a victory to me. Over and over again, that's what I heard all week from these new believers. What's it saying? When I'm among God's people, I, I gain strength. When I'm in the sanctuary of God and I worship God, there's just like the spiritual warfare lifts from my soul. And I can see I can see through God's eyes like maybe I couldn't before or like I could, have not been able to for a while. You see, it's not an accident. The Bible says, forsake not the assembling of yourselves together with other believers. But even more as you see the day drawing near. Now, I know you can watch us on, on the Internet. A lot of people do. A lot of people watch us on TV 45. and they can, You can watch again on Saturday night, 7 o'clock if you'd like. Same message I'm preaching uh, tonight, to this morning. But there's something about being here. And I know that 50 years ago, again, 95% of your believers maybe came nearly every Sunday. Not so anymore. We've got so many other things going on. And know this, when you've got other things going on, you don't, you don't assemble yourself together. You do give up something. So don't be surprised if you get discouraged more. 
Don't be surprised if you begin to doubt more. Don't be surprised if these things happen to your life and you're going through spiritual warfare. You are. I know that you're going to travel. Pam and I travel some too. I know you've got other things. You've got grandkids, your kids, and you've got, you've got uh, things going on over here, and you're taking one off to college. and what. I know all that. But just know, be very careful, because when you don't go, you do sacrifice something. It does cost you something. He says, place your foot where it needs to be. As Jesus Christ, Lord of your life. I want you to notice, secondly, in this passage, as we look, as I pick up my notes. Look at that over there. <laughs> oh, never mind. <laughs> All right. Well, I didn't. Well, I, I guess I did need that. All right. We, we need to bleep that out before Saturday night service. That's all I've got to say. <clears throat> you need to trace his hand. You need to trace what God has done in your life. Look what happens in verse 20. Like a dream, when one awakes, you rouse yourself. Look in verse uh, 24, 20, 23. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. That's where strength comes from. You guide me with your counsel. And after you receive me to glory, I've, I've got heaven even to look forward to. Whom... Do I have in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. All day long, all, all the way back to verse 1. The conclusion begins in verse 1 because he's looking back and he says, God, truly God, is good to Israel. Let me show you how. Can you trace his hand in your life? The Bible teaches us in Colossians 1.12, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in life. Instead of saying, Lord, this is all what's wrong with my life, suddenly you look at all the good things in your life. Look back at your salvation. That's why it's so important to share your, your story about your salvation with other people. So often it's important to them, but it's important to you. When I have a chance to do that at dinner with the pastor, it strengthens my faith. I remember my roots. I remember what God has done for me. Remember the answers to prayer. If you can't remember them, write them down. Put a journal to it if you can't remember them. But all the things that God has done for you over and over and over again. Why? Because faith stands between the no longer and the not yet. You predict what you have faith in what you're going to do in the future and what God's going to do based on what he's done in the past. You trace his hand. What about trusting his heart as I close? He says in these last few verses, my flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion, my inheritance. He's, he's what I need a desire. He's what, he's what basically I, he's going to give me what I want if I was smart enough and wise enough to know what I needed and wanted. He's going to give me that. He's my inheritance. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. And that breaks my heart. That's going to happen. It's breaking his heart. Those who don't know the Lord will perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge. That I may tell all your works. 
Listen to me very carefully. Some God showed me again this past week I haven't thought about in a while. And that is faith, trust, is not really an option for the believer. It's not really an option for the Christian. Let me show you why. The Bible tells us Jesus was talking about, you know, if you have faith, you can move a mountain. He says this in Mark eleven twenty four. 24. It won't be up on the screen. Just listen to the paraphrase. Basically, he says, if you believe, and, and in the Greek, that means, in the original language, if you already believe that you have it, it will be yours. The Bible says without faith, it's impossible to please God. Hebrews eleven six tells us that. You must believe that he is, and he is rewarder, that those who diligently seek him, you must believe that, yeah, it does pay to serve God. He's going to reward you at some point. Whether here or in heaven, he's, the reward's going to come. Faith is not really an option. So we pray and we beg God. And I'm not, saying, I'm not against begging God. I, I see heartfelt prayers all throughout the Bible. And we pray again, we pray again, and we doubt some more, and we doubt some more, and we pray again, and we doubt some more. We pray again, we doubt some more, and then we get mad at God. And why are we getting mad at God? Well, maybe it's, it's genuine. But maybe it was like me when I became a Christian at the age of 16. I was serving the Lord, and then uh, God uh, didn't do what I wanted him to do. And so I got upset with God. I began to manipulate God. Can I say that? Those words? You know, like a child, you know, in your home. You don't give him... Or her, what she wants. So what does she do? I don't love you anymore. You know, I'm not going to do that. Uh, I'm not going to kiss you goodnight. No, you can't pray for me. I mean, over and over again, what are they doing? They're pouting because they think if they act that way, you're going to give them what they want. And if you're a good parent, you don't. If you're a good grandparent, you do. <laughs> but that was me. I thought, wow. I was genuine. I wasn't trying to manipulate God, but I was just general, genuinely upset. Things were just, just not going right. And so suddenly they went right. I thought, hmm, a formula for getting what God, getting God to act on my behalf. All I've got to do is pout. All I've got to do is have a pity party. And he's going to feel sorry for me, and he's going to be afraid I won't love him anymore. And he's going to give me what I want. Well, that worked another couple of times. And I began to grow as a Christian. And I began to have that pity party again because things weren't going my way. And God's, God said, stop right there. That's, you said, well, in an audible voice? No, a lot louder than that. But it was in my head that won't be working anymore. It's impossible to please me without believing me. And so when we pray, do we really believe it's going to happen? Do we act as though it's already in our hands? So I'm going to already act as though and live as though that prayer is already answered. Now, I'm still going to pray about it. And so there's a, certainly a dichotomy there of, of a contradiction, you might say. I'm still going to be asking God. I'm still going to be, as you were, begging God, desperation. But you know, when I finish up, I'm going to say, God, that's as good as in my hand. That's not an option. We think it is. I... I think it is sometimes. Well, I know I'm a believer. You know, God's my portion forever. And Jesus is on the throne of my life. But, you know, God, you know, help me with my doubts. Help me with my unbelief. He's willing to do that. But we got to receive that help. And we say, okay, God, I do believe you. If you're going to do something great in my life, I've got to place my faith in you. 
And without that, things are just messed up. There's no guarantees at all. There's only anxiety and stress. And we think the whole time, you know, it never occurs to us that God, you're so much greater than me. Of course you're going to do things I don't understand. Of course. I'm just, I'm, I'm just a human being. Of course you're going to do that. So what about us today? You know, it's sort of like um, that Lee Strobel illustration out of Case for Christ that he talks about <clears throat> with a hunter and the bear. Hunter goes into the forest and he sees a bear trapped in a trap. And he, he, he makes a motion toward him and the bear immediately thinks, this guy's trying to hurt me. He's not here to help me. And the bear lashes out at the hunter and only the chain on the trap keeps him from killing the hunter. So the hunter t takes a gun, puts a tranquilizer in it, shoots the bear. The bear goes to sleep. Then he finds out in the trap that actually he's going to have to push the paw of the bear forward before he can get it out. It's going to have to hurt more before he can get it out. And he thinks to himself, if this bear was even barely awake, I'd be a dead man. Because the bear does not understand the hunter was trying to help him, not hurt him. Why? Because the bear's a bear. He's not a man. He's not human. Can't communicate. And so often we think life, God through life, is trying to maybe hurt us somehow. But he's trying to communicate to us, I'm so much greater than you, you don't understand what is going on. And what I'm asking you is to put me on the throne, live in thanksgiving to encourage yourself, and believe me, because you are reminded of the fact that I am Lord and you want the desires of my heart for you. And because you look to the past, you can have faith in the future. You claim the promises of God in the Bible. At the beginning of this message, I said that um, usually when you have a sermon on doubts, it's almost always assurance of salvation. But isn't that the illustration? You know, there you are. You think, well, I think I prayed to receive Christ. I'm not sure. Maybe, maybe I, I wasn't really repentant in my heart. What is repentance anyway? Did I really understand that? Was my baptism, I mean, should I have been baptized later? I mean, I don't know. And, and you're just confused. And sometimes you just need to come back to a situation in your life where you say, I'm going to make it right. I'm going to make it right. There's some of you Christians here. You ought to be saying, Lord, I have not been giving you this area of my life. And because of that, maybe you haven't really been on the throne of my life. And I'm really wondering if I really want the desires of your heart and, and be willing to be satisfied whatever you do. Can I really trust you, God? God, I can. And I'm going to choose to trust. But then if you're not a Christian, the thing, or you're not sure you're a Christian, you've got to be assured of that. Because you can't claim any of the promises of God until you know. These things, the Bible says, have I written unto you that you may know that you have eternal life. Do you know that? Do you know it? I want to pray a prayer with you. And um, I want to pray for believers as well. But I want to pray for those who have never received Christ. Or you have, but you're just not sure. You're just not sure if you were to die right now, you would go to heaven. Let me pray with you now. And if you pray with me, I believe that God will intervene, do a supernatural work in your life, and come into your heart with heads bowed and eyes closed. At this moment, 
Rather than pray a couple of different prayers uh, for those who need the Lord, I'm going to pray one. And it has to do with assurance of knowing that you're saved. But even if you've never received Christ, you can still pray this prayer with me. And you can all do it silently as I pray aloud. Lord God, thank you so much for dying on the cross for me. If I've never been saved, if I'm not a believer, Lord, I want to be a believer now. I want you to come into my heart and help me to know that I'm a Christian, that if I were to die, I'd go to heaven because of what Jesus has done on the cross for me. If I don't know it, I want to know it now. Come into my life. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. You can find more sermons and other information at crosslifechurch.com.